Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we are talking about the age of the strong man. Obviously, we all think a lot about one strong man these days, Vladimir Putin, but he's not the only one who's threatening Western liberal values in today's world. And we're very lucky to have here today on the podcast the number one chronicler of strong men around the world, Gideon Rachman, who's chief foreign policy commentator at the Financial Times, who um, has just published a fantastic new book called The Age of the Strong Man, which he defines. And uh, it's a really interesting book based on his own experiences of, of engaging uh, and talking to many of the, the protagonists in his book over a, the last uh, couple of decades. Uh, but I think also provides us with some really useful tools for understanding how they're changing, not just how their own countries are run, but how geopolitics works more generally. And the, the echoes in uh, many of the, the liberal democratic countries that have been tempted by the strong men syndrome um, as well. So thanks a lot for joining, Gideon. So even though you finished writing your book before the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you, you did manage to to um, to write a very timely book, which uh, has a lot of implications for um, for understanding what's going on at the moment. Can you start just by telling us about how you define the strong man? Why? What is it that they all have in common that makes them a singular phenomenon rather than just a bunch of slightly autocratic people who happen to be in power in different parts of the world? Yeah, well, it's a good question. It's one I kind of wrestle with throughout the book. But I, I would broadly say uh, that they have um, a personality cult. These tend to be uh, leaders who are not about the system, they're about the individual. So Trump, famously in his 2016 speech to the Republican convention, says, I alone can do it. And in different ways, all of these leaders uh, have that kind of pitch. So that, um, for example, in India, if, if uh, as the Indian historian Ram Guha put it, the official line now is is close to being Modi is India, India is Modi. If you get vaccinated in India, you get a photo of Modi on the vaccination certificate. In China, uh, you know, again, very different system, but you've again seen a move towards a more personalised rule where Xi Jinping's thought has actually been written into the Chinese constitution. Uh, there's a kind of cult in Vladimir around Vladimir Putin in Russia where he, essentially he rules not so much like a general secretary of the Communist Party, but like a czar. Uh, he is the centre of the system. Then I think after that, uh, there's a surprising, consistent sort of ideological, almost emotional pitch, which is I would say they're almost all nostalgic nationalists, by which I mean they're people whose pitch is the nation was great, uh, it's it's on the slide, and I'm the person to turn this round. So Trump's famous pitch is make America great again, but in different ways, they're all arguing for that. So... Uh, she is talks about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese people. Modi talks about restoring the great era of Hindu cultural greatness. Even in our own way in Britain, you know, I think Brexit was a make Britain great again project. And so so there's that. And then finally, I'd say there's um, a kind of contempt for institutions and often the rule of law. Because if you combine this personality cult with the argument that there's a national crisis, that leads you to saying, well, you know, we can't afford to play by the rules of the elite, the rules of 
the constitution or whatever, we need to take dramatic action and I'm the person to do that. And that leads to, yeah, personalized rule that isn't really about institutions. So that's, I think, the commonality. So those are some quite clear and very recognizable traits that lots of the people you're talking about have. But the nitpicker might say that surely there's some difference between a sort of fully fledged dictator like Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin who put opposition in prison and someone like Boris Johnson, who is democratically elected, whereas, you know, he doesn't seem to even have total control of his own party, let alone all of the institutions of, of the country. And then obviously you have lots of people in between, the sort of Victor Orbans who maybe undermine some of the institutions, but clearly have less total control over what's going on than the, than the CEO or Putin. Yeah, no, Mark, I mean, it's not a nitpick. It's a very serious point. And uh, it's one I, I kind of wrestle with in the book. But in a way, it's part of the point of the book is to say, actually, there are continuities between our own democracy and uh, and she at the one extreme, but that it's a continuum. Obviously, these people are not identical in terms of personality or most crucially in terms of the system they operate in. But it is interesting to see the connections. I mean, so, so let me start maybe with a connection between Trump and these autocrats, because he is elected in a democratic system uh, and he is ultimately just constrained by institutions when he attempts to overturn an election, the system holds, but only just. But I think if you look at the way Trump interacted with autocrats and, and say the memoirs of people like Fiona Hill and John Bolton, who worked with him, they were in no doubt that he felt much more comfortable with an Erdogan or a Putin, that he admired them, wanted to be like them, um, than with you know Angela Merkel, who was a, uh, an elected Democrat. And indeed, Fiona in her book says that when Trump joked about, you know, she abolishes term limits in China, and Trump jokes a couple of times saying, well, we should do the same in the US. But she said, he's not joking. That's, that's what he wants to do. So, so there, I think you, you have a proven case of, you know, the world's most famous, most important democracy falling prey to somebody with these instincts, albeit in a different institutional context. Then you mentioned a couple of others, which again, I thought about, is it fair to include them? Boris Johnson and Orban. Um, Orban, I think I don't really have too, too, too many problems with including them. Because anti-Semitism clinched it for you. Yeah, it doesn't help. But I mean, actually, the whole Soros um, uh, attack, which which is very integral to Orban, is very common to all of these strongman figures. I mean, very tragically, actually, we've just seen in, in Turkey uh, the imprisonment of Osman Kavala and um, a lot of other people, seven other co-defendants. Kavala got a life sentence. And my friend Hakan Altenay got 18 years. And I think the thing that targeted him uh, was that he worked for Soros, for the Open Society Foundation, uh, is somebody who Erdogan has denounced. So it is a bit of a marker when these people start going on about George Soros. Um, you know, uh, Trump did as well. And actually, um, so I'm afraid did, did a few people, Nigel Farage in Britain started. To and Nick it. Timothy even, didn't he? I think. Yeah, some possibly, point. yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think I think, but Orban himself, you know, defines himself as an illiberal democrat, and there there are various, uh, you know, institutional reforms and inverted commas uh, that, that really rig the system in his favour, and indeed says, you know, we should praise Putin because Putin has made Russia great again, and we should recognise that. So I don't really have a problem with Orban. Um, Boris Johnson is is a closer case, uh, more arguable, but but I think there is a case to be made. First of all, I think that Trump and Brexit were clearly linked events in the minds of the protagonists, incidentally. Trump 
is in Britain on the day of the Brexit vote and says, uh, you know, we're going to win now in, in November, he, he can immediately sees the significance and that these are common movements. And Johnson himself, although, I mean, I would say that probably, you know, clearly Trump's closest relation is with Farage, not with Johnson. But Johnson does flirt with Trumpism. I mean, there's a bit when he resigns after uh, from the May government and says, um, you know, the problem is that we're being too polite. We should behave like Donald Trump in our relations with the EU. We should break the furniture, be much more disruptive. And he also gives an interview in which he says the reason Brexit is being frustrated, a lot of people think, is the deep state in Britain. Um, And that's classic Trumpian rhetoric this sort of conspiratorial idea that actually just sort of, you know, following procedures, following the rule of law uh, is some sort of conspiracy rather than just what happens in a, in a functioning democratic society. Um, so, and, th- and then he follows through on some of the strongman rhetoric when he comes in. He prorogues Parliament famously, which is, uh, you know, an act that is then deemed illegal. And he boots something like 25 members of his party, some of the most senior respected members of the party out. Again, a very unprecedented thing to do. And it's sort of saying it's my way or the highway. Now, he uses the rhetoric of national emergency, you know, uh, the plot against Brexit, etc., to justify all this. Now, you could say, OK, well, after that, Boris Johnson settles down and, you know, and so on. And to his credit, he does accept the Supreme Court judgment, whereas I think a Trump would have said that, you know, he wouldn't. He would have disputed it. But But even now, I mean, Johnson is the first sitting prime minister to be convicted of breaking the law while in Downing Street and is sort of saying, well, you know, this is the fines over Partygate. And, and, and just, you know, today I'm looking at the reforms to the Electoral Commission, which are basically making it less able to hold government to account. This, these are sort of strongman style tactics. And maybe, you know, we're a bit complacent in Britain because we think, oh, well, this is the UK. It could never happen here and, and that kind of thing. But actually, that's what Americans said until Trump hit them between the jaws. So I don't think you can be complacent about what Johnson is doing. Now, he's a different sort of personality type. And the presentation is all very British and sort of P.G. Woodhouse and unthreatening. But I actually don't regret including him. I think it was the right thing to do. So we should talk both about the sort of long term consequences that created this era of strong men, but also the the ability of liberal democracies to to deal with them and, and what it means for the idea of a of a world divided between democracy and authoritarianism your your thesis but before we do that one of the questions you get asked a lot nowadays is is, is it just a coincidence that they're all men no i don't think it is um i mean one has to acknowledge that throughout history men have tended to be the people running the shows so but but i think in this case I, I talked about nostalgic nationalism, but there's also a cultural nostalgia. These people are tend to be traditionalists and traditionalists on sex roles. Uh, so they're not feminists and they very much have cashed in, if you like, on the unease about transgender rights. I mean, I thought it was kind of striking that in the middle of the Ukraine war, Putin finds time to reach out to J.K. Rowling and say, you know, she's being unfairly persecuted in the West. Uh, now, Rowling, of course, rejected that. And, you know, it's totally unfair on her to associate her with Putin. But Putin wanted to appeal to that group of people in the West who think, you know, we've gone crazy and um, it's uh, transgender rights, etc. And indeed, Orban running um, in Hungary just recently talked about, you know, the gender madness that the EU was trying to impose on, on them. And there is a kind of overt sexism to a lot of these people. I mean, Trump famously, the whole grabber by the pussy stuff, he's he's a 
very macho guy who's um appeals to people who i think particularly men who um prefer things the way they were and i think that is part of the appeal so in your book you actually identify a date when the era of the strong men starts and part of the backdrop to it is obviously a big sentiment amongst uh, a lot of analysts of politics around the world, lots of NGOs about how we've been in a democratic recession for the last couple of decades. And they kind of show how year in, year out, authoritarianism seems to be growing at the expense of, of liberal democracy. What's your sense of, of, A, why don't you tell the listeners when the, when the, when the age began? But secondly, um, why did this happen after the end of history and all of the hopes that people had that, that we'd be having a very different discussion in 2022? Gosh, those are two huge, huge questions. But um, so when, I think um, almost too conveniently, it's the 31st of December 1999, when Putin comes into power at the dawn of the 21st century. And that is, as you suggest, the kind of height of the liberal optimism period, just a decade after the fall of the Berlin Wall. We're still very much in the end of history period. And I think it's for that reason uh, that perhaps the West is very slow to recognise what kind of a character Putin is. Uh, he speaks the language of democracy, which is almost unchallengeable at that time, and says, I want to turn Russia into a modern democratic state. Uh, Bill Clinton, who visits him shortly afterwards, says, this is the guy who is going to turn Russia into a modern democratic state. And we kind of ignore the, like, the brutality of the war in Chechnya, the immediate move against some of the uh, oligarchs who control independent media, and so on. Um, so for what, and then when we do recognise that Putin is is not what we thought, he's tended to be dismissed as an anomaly. Um, you know, Merkel says he's a 19th century figure struggling to exist in the 21st century. But I think that over the course of the next 20 years, it becomes clear that actually he is a forerunner for a lot of these people. So you have Erdogan coming in in 2003 in Turkey, similarly hailed in the West as a liberal reformer initially, but it becomes apparent that that is not the case. Um, over the course of the next couple of decades. Then I think crucial moment is Xi Jinping in China in 2012 because of the way he returns China back to a personality cult and away from the more collective technocratic leadership that they'd had in the post-Mao era. Uh, Modi in India 2014. Um, I would say, I mean, Orban comes to power in 2010, but I think 2015 is his annus mirabilis because of the refugee crisis, which turns him into a global figure. 2016 is a critical year because that's the year Trump is elected and you suddenly realise, my God, you know, this is a phenomenon that is not just confined to autocracies or fragile democracies. It can happen in the United States. 2016, also the year of Brexit. 2017 is uh, oddly when Mohammed bin Salman consolidates his power in Saudi Arabia. Now, again, that's an autocracy, what, what, but it's, it had been a kind of collective royal family and, and it hadn't really been personalised around this single figure before. 2018, Bolsonaro wins in Brazil. 2019, if you want an African figure, I think Abiy Arben is very interesting because he, again, is hailed as a liberal reformer. Uh, this is the leader of Ethiopia, given the Nobel Peace Prize. And then, you know, it turns out to be a strong man uh, of, of a kind of violent sort to initiate uh, the war in Tigray, uh, where there have been many, many thousands of deaths. So that, that so you've given us a list of, of very, very convincing evidence that it's happened, but why? Yeah, well, I mean, it's hard to pin it down to a couple of things, but so I'll try, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple of, of talking points, if you like. I mean, I think the one that a lot of people look at is economics. Uh, I think in the West, certainly, 
a lot of this is a backlash against cosmopolitanism, globalism, as they call it. And I think that there is a group of people who are ready for that message because they feel that they've lost out in globalization. Uh, for example, you know, we by all now should be aware of the terrible trouble um, in the white working class in America in the 1990s and 2010s, what uh, the economist Angus Dayton called deaths of despair, where the life expectancy of white men uh, without college degrees actually begins to fall, which is something that had happened in Russia in the 1990s. And a lot of these deaths are suicides, alcohol, drug addiction, and they, they reflect real trouble in society. And I think that uh, Trump appeals and, uh, you know, to, and the same with other populists in the West, to people who've been doing badly economically. But I don't think that is the only thing. I think there's also a broader sense of cultural unease, which is often linked to migration, um, that uh, basically the populist strongman tends to be a majoritarian to appeal to a, a majority group that feels threatened. Uh, and the threat often, I'm afraid, is uh, actually in the 1930s, it would have been Jews. Now Jews play a minor role. It tends to be Muslims now. And so, you know, in Trump, again, build the wall. Uh, Orban similarly literally builds a wall uh, and argues that if he doesn't, the Hungarian nation will be submerged. In Britain, Brexit, what it's about, take back control and really take back control of borders, control migration. Uh, and then if you go beyond the West, um, in India, you know, the driving fuel of Modi's uh, BJP is fear of the Muslim or fear, anger towards the Muslim minority. Now, the idea that Hindus would be flooded by Muslims seems bizarre. You know, they're 80% they're of the population. Why would they be scared of losing their status? But that is very much the rhetoric of, of the BJP, that, that, that Hindus are somehow oppressed because either because of affirmative action for minorities or because they claim that you know Muslims are outbreeding Hindus, that there's a love jihad by which Muslims are deliberately marrying into the Hindu uh, majority and diluting it. So that is a big driver, the, the uh, fear of the majority, uh, which can be stirred up and is stirred up by these populist strongman figures. Uh, so I think if you, you know, there's lots going on. Social media is another thing we could talk about. But I think that if I had to pick two kind of driving emotional forces, I would say it's economics and migration. So that kind of brings me to the, the sort of next big thing which I wanted to delve into with you, which is um, how this notion that Donald Trump and others have put forward that, you know, the big battle of the 21st century is going to be one between democracy and authoritarianism. Macron's talked about sort of, well, in fact, Marine Le Pen more than Macron talked about <laughs> conflict between globalists and cosmopolitans and more about open and closed societies. Um, the fact that your category seems to span quite a lot of different types of regime types seems to create a problem for, for the idea that the world's going to be split between um, democracy and authoritarianism, because a lot of the big democracies in the world are on the strongman side of the equation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think that's right. Um, now, I think that... You can make it into a coherent proposition, though. Say if you're Joe Biden, when he talks about the battle for democracy being the theme of his presidency, I think he does see the, the, it as having a domestic side, which is beating back the forces of Trumpism, and an international side, which is beating back authoritarianism globally. And I think there is an internal coherence to that. 
Um, but of course, when you get to the foreign policy side, it gets complicated because a lot of your allies are also flirting with strongman politics or have fallen prey to it. So, you know, India is regarded as a key ally in pushing back against China. But and I know the Americans are concerned by what's happening inside India, but they can't really, um, you know, say, well, we're not going to have anything to do in the Rendra Modi. And similarly, Saudi Arabia, you know, Mohammed bin Salman has a terrible relationship with Biden because Biden, the Biden administration released the American report into the murder of Khashoggi. Uh, you know, he refuses to speak to them, but they suddenly find they need the Saudis over oil because of the Russia confrontation. So it's this awful rail policy that we're similar, you know, familiar with from the Cold War, where you're having to balance um, these these things and, and try to work out, well, which is the most important battle to fight and which slightly dodgy allies do we have to um, enlist? Uh, so it's it's hard to be entirely consistent. Because there was this moment during the uh, you know last few weeks when Dmitry Medvedev talked about a Russia-India-China axis, and that has to be the nightmare of the West, no? To 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 see these enormous countries lined up against us, it would be. But although it doesn't really make any sense, unless the, the Chinese were to do a Henry Kissinger and manage to switch their antagonism with India, uh, but but that you know viewed from India their greatest fear is China now um, and Pakistan. And China and Pakistan are very close. And, you know, Chinese uh, soldiers killed Indians on on the border um, quite recently. So, um, you know, I think there's an incoherence in the Indian position in that they don't really recognise how close Russia is to China. Um, But from their point of view, I think that there's a sort of real politique element in not wanting to antagonise the Russians, but also I think, and possibly more concerning for the West, uh, there's an emotional element, no doubt about it. I mean, I think that the Russian argument that the West is hypocritical, you know, that the West uh, cares about the Ukrainians, but, you know, unleashed a war in Iraq that led to uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths, uh, that meanwhile, there are other human rights abuses going on in Yemen, in Ethiopia, that are not getting nearly as much attention those arguments do resonate, you know, right across the world. And they're difficult ones for, for the West to deal with. And even, you know, if you want to be really uh, kind of see a sinister side to it, there are Indian friends of mine who argue that one of the reasons that the BJP is quite sympathetic to Putin or figures in India are sympathetic to Putin. Common hatred of Muslims. Yeah. And also the idea that he is a strong guy who is willing to use the military. Um, And they have fantasies about, you know, unleashing the military in Kashmir or finally, you know, defeating Pakistan in a decisive war, maybe, you know, even reuniting Pakistan with India, whatever. There's a lot of suppressed violence and militarism in India. And I think that's part of the whole appeal of the strongman thing is that strongmen uh, appeal to those who are excited by martial glory, by violence. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people around the world who fall into that category. So if the era started on the 31st of of December 1999, um, where are we in this era? We kind of early days. This is going to be like a it's going to be a strongman century or. Um, Gosh, I sincerely hope not. Um, You know, it's easy to to get depressed by, you know, it's not a great period. Um, And I think that it's entirely likely or possible maybe 50-50, that Trump gets back in 2024, which would be a a horrible blow 
Uh, we see what's happening in Ukraine. We see she digging in. I mentioned the uh, court case this week in Turkey. It, there's a lot that's bad going on. But you could also argue that Ukraine might be a turning point. Um, that I think one of the inherent flaws in strongman rule is a tendency to megalomania, to overreach, uh, lack of checks and balances. And that has led to uh, sort of disastrous overreach by Putin in Ukraine. Um, and it's possible that that will discredit the model. I think it certainly does discredit the model. It may even lead to the fall of Putin and to a swing back. I'll put it another way. I think if Putin had won very easily in three days in Ukraine, then I think uh, that lots of wannabe strongmen all over the world would have looked at that and said, OK, you know, we can see uh, you can do this kind of stuff and maybe I'll do it. Uh, so it's important that that he that he failed initially and that he he gets bogged down um, and, and that that kind of style of government looks bad rather than good. So maybe we can sort of end with that, you know, having looked at this over the last couple of decades, seeing all these strong men have their triumphs and disasters in different contexts. Do you think there are some lessons for, for people who don't like the era, the age of the strong men about how to, to push back, how liberal democracy can, can fight back either politically by winning elections, um, as Macron did in France, or institutionally by um, reinforcing the, the checks and balances, which um, can somehow prevent the, the erosion between the difference between liberal democracy and authoritarianism. Yeah, I think vigilance, you know, I, I think, you know, it's part of what I was saying about Boris Johnson. It's hard to, you know, to see him. I don't think he's Putin, but I think it does mean that you take seriously the idea that checks and balances matter, institutions matter, truth telling and politics matter, that a cult of personality is a red flag. Um, and that you'd never say it could never happen here. I think that's that's really dangerous. I think the other thing is that those of us who are lucky enough to, to live in functioning democracies um, need to recognise the dangers of, of, of a strong man in other ways by trying to pull together all the forces that, that might defeat them. Um, so that in Israel, and I, I would definitely, for example, put Netanyahu in, in the broad category of strongman rulers, and he's in the book. And the only way to get him out eventually is that every political party uh, comes together in a coalition from the Muslim Brotherhood to the Israeli settlers um, because they can all see the danger and they form, manage to form a coalition government with a majority of one, which may actually be about to fall. But that kind of model, you see it actually in Turkey as well, where a lot of uh, different political parties from very different traditions are trying to unite to uh, to block Erdogan. And I think, um, you know, a recognition of the dangers, a a support for institutions and a willingness to uh, of political parties to bury their parochial differences in the interests of the broader project of of stopping strongman rule are all very very important. But you know, if you're in a China or a Russia where the institutions no longer exist and there is no opposition, you're in a much much more difficult situation. Uh, I don't think that strongman rule will last even there, because I think it is such an inherently flawed model. But, it, but the end of it is a much less easy to engineer in a peaceful way. You think it will end with a bang rather than a whimper? Yeah, I would guess. Um, you know, it's possible, though, of course, that it may end with a tap on the shoulder rather than a bang. <laughs> you know, that, that there's an internal coup, uh, you know, of the sort that happened, say, with, uh, with Khrushchev uh, in, the, in the 60s in, in Russia, where a collective leadership 
is able to ease somebody out. Um, and maybe that could happen in China. But I think that one of the things about strongman rule is the longer they're in, the more they centralize power, the more they weed out di dissident voices, and it gets harder and harder. I mean, if you think back to the 1930s, and those parallels are unfortunately unavoidable, you know, Hitler lasted till the end, Mussolini more or less to the end, Franco died in his bed and you know, the 1970s. Uh, so these strongman rulers are not that easy to get rid of. Okay, well, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you. If you're right, it sounds like we can uh, come back to the topic many times over the next few years. Um, we've got one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. So I'm obviously going to recommend The Age of the Strongman, How the Cult of the Leader Threatens Democracy Around the World by Gideon Rachman. What's on your bookshelf, Gideon? Gosh, um, well, I'm actually still reading quite a lot about strongmen. So um, I'm reading Ruth Ben-Ghiat's book about uh, strongman rule, which is a more kind of historical study, um, quite a lot about Mussolini. She's an Italy specialist, so she writes about Mussolini and Berlusconi. And I'm about to um, open a new book by Isaac Stonefish on uh, Chinese influence in America, which has... Uh, kind of rather inflammatory title. I think it's called America Second or something like that, but it's apparently pretty good. So I'd like to, I'd like to read that as well. Great. We'll put links up to all these publications on our website at ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please do subscribe to it on whatever platform you've used to listen to us on now. And while you're there, if you want to give us a five-star rating and a positive review, we will not complain. But for now, from Gideon Rachman and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and the editor of this episode is Leonie Muller. <laughs>